And let's take the Word of God together this evening and turn to the New Testament book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. And this is a text that has been dear to me over the last several years, and I've preached on it really probably less than a year ago. But I want to draw your attention there. It's something that God has brought back to my attention this week. Many of you know I took a couple of days with the boys, with Mike and Titus. We went on a little hiking expedition through the Brecon Beacons and uh, really enjoyed ourselves there and uh, borrowed Tommy's camper van and parked up along the side of the road and grilled some steak on an open fire and kind of thing that men ought to do together, you know. And uh, we've had a thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed ourselves and not one complaint from Titus all the way up to the top of that mountain. And I uh, couldn't believe it. The top of Penny Fan, that's meant to be one of the highest peaks in the UK. And he did very well. In fact, the only complaint we had was when we wouldn't go straight up a cliff face. That was the only complaint that we had. But we had a brilliant time. And whilst away together, I opened up a book by Frank Borum, F.W. Borum, the last student that Charles Spurgeon admitted into the pastor's college when he was alive and trained. And ended up going, Frank Borm ended up going to New Zealand to minister. The Lord used him greatly to write a number of things. Just had a great way with observation and perception. And uh, some things that he wrote just brought me back to this text. And I want to share with you some thoughts. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse number 36. I believe the Lord has something for us tonight here. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, Say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Beautiful story. It's a true story. Now it's not to be confused with a similar story that took place in Bethany. And uh, you'll find that uh, that account given in the other gospel records when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, also washes the feet of the Savior. Two different accounts, similar but different. Whilst reading this week, I read in Borum's book, he spoke of a hunting trip with one of his friends. And on this trip, they were hunting rabbits. They were camping together in the wilderness of New Zealand. And they were hunting rabbits and they were taking turns. One would shoot the one rabbit and the next would then shoot the next one they saw. They were taking it in turns. It was, it was understood. And it came time for Mr. Borum's friend to shoot the next rabbit. And, and uh, they came across a, a particular part of the forest and Mr. Boren saw there the ears of a rabbit just sticking up above a root. He nudged his friend. His friend raised his gun, pulled the trigger, and Mr. Boren said, you missed him. To which his friend replied, nonsense. He walked over. The rabbit that Mr. Boren was looking at had run off. But his friend was looking at a different rabbit. He walked over, reached down, and picked up the limp, lifeless body of the rabbit that he had shot. Mr. Boren began to think. God began to speak to him about life and how we look at things. And he really gave, he gave four points that have stuck with me all this week. He said, I have no right to assume that the things that I see are the things that other people see. He went on, I have no right to assume that the things that other people see are the things that I see. His third observation was, I have no right to assume that because I see a thing that is necessarily obvious to everybody else. And I have no right to assume that because I do not see a thing that nobody else can see it either. Frank Borum learned an important lesson that week, that day. A lesson about how we look at things. And I'm interested tonight in not necessarily seeing as you see, but I'm more interested in seeing as Jesus sees. I'm more interested in looking at people as Christ looks at people. And that is exactly what we're finding in this story tonight. It's not a made-up story. It's a historical event that has been recorded for us in the pages of Scripture to teach us a very, very important lesson. You see, one of the great problems with humanity is that we see through many, so many different lenses, don't we? And it taints our view. We oftentimes see through the lenses of our culture. 
And if somebody comes along who has a different culture, it bothers us because that's not the way it should be done. Or it's certainly not the way we do it from where I come from. We sometimes look through the lenses of class, don't we? I am better than that person because of my current economic status. Or some people look through the lenses of color. And if your skin doesn't match my skin and your hair isn't like my hair, well, then there's immediately some sort of a difference to be noted and to be assumed. And still yet others look through the lenses of denomination. Well, that's not the way we Baptists do things. Well, that's not the way our particular view of theology interprets things. If we're not careful, we look at everything through a certain kind of lenses. But oh, I am desiring tonight not to see as the Baptists see and not to see as those of a certain theological persuasion see, but I long tonight to see as Jesus sees. I long to look at people the same way that Christ does. I think we cannot look at this story without first looking at the way that most people view life and the way that most people view humanity. It's interesting that it's recorded here in our text. Here's a story, very interesting, a simple story. There was a, a religious man, a Pharisee, who invited the Lord Jesus to come and eat at his house. And so Christ came into this Pharisee's house and everything was fine. All was good until, until a sinner came. I think that's the way many churches are today. Everybody's happy. All Religious people, externally religious people, and you could say all sort of middle class people, the average church, the middle class English people, all is well until a few sinners come in. Then they ruin all of our fun. They interrupt our peace. Do you know, it would be, it would be good if some churches had their peace interrupted. In came this woman who was a notable sinner. was a grumbling amongst the minds and the hearts of the Pharisees. They couldn't believe what this woman was doing, washing Jesus' feet. If Jesus knew who this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. No way. This man claims to be a prophet. And he's letting this woman. She's a terrible woman. How could she? And so we're, we're given little insight on how most people look. The Bible says in verse 37, Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, we're looking tonight at how we see things. When the Pharisee saw it. What did he see? What did the religious man see? What do most people see? Well, I'll tell you what he saw. The Bible tells us he saw a woman in the city, just another woman, nobody special. 
That's the way we are. We have this problem. It's a natural problem. We look at people as masses. They're just a number. It would be just as well if we gave everybody a number. Forget about names. That's a little bit too complicated. Let's all wear a number and wear it around our neck because that's the way that most people view humanity. You're just another number. And because we look at people as just another number, there's no sentimentality. There's no, there's no sense of uh, trying to feel what they feel or see as they see because after all, they're just another number. A woman from the city. And not only that, but they saw just another woman and not just another woman, but a woman that was a sinner. They saw a woman and they saw her by her reputation. Now, let's be honest, it's hard. If somebody has a reputation, it's hard to see them for anything else besides that. It's hard to shake a reputation, isn't it? And uh, if you ha have been known historically for your drinking problem, you will forever be called and known as a drunkard to some people. If you have been known for some problem in the past, you will forever be recognized by some people by that problem. That's the way that people look. That's the way that people see. In fact, the man were given an insight into his heart. The Bible says the Pharisee, which had bidden him when he saw it, he spake within himself. He didn't say it out loud, but inside of his own mind, he was, he was thinking this. Hold on a moment. If this man, if this Jesus was a prophet, if he were really a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So let me tell you what the man saw. It's the view of the self-righteous. Can I just say the Pharisee had no special insight at all? No great measure of discernment. He simply saw the obvious. He simply saw what everybody else saw. He wasn't special because he could see she had a bad reputation and because he recognized her as the woman from the town with a bad name. Can I just tell you tonight, it does not take a spiritual man to see all the faults of a sinner. Contrary to what some people imagine. It doesn't take a man who walks close to God to be able to point out all the faults and failures and sins of people that walk beneath the tent or people that walk in your life. In fact, that's the easy thing to see. That's the obvious thing to see. I think that humanity has an ugly habit, and if I were honest, I'd probably say I'm a part of that, but we have an ugly habit of seeing the worst in people and missing the best. Don't we? And it is, whilst we look at the worst, the worst, that we are thus blinded from being able to see the best. And so the question tonight is, how do we change that? How do we change that way of looking or that way of seeing? I was reading this week, there's an old ancient legend about the Lord Jesus. It's not recorded in scripture, so we have no way of knowing whether it's true or not. But it's, it's lovely anyways. I was sharing it with the children this morning. There's an ancient legend about Jesus that says he entered into the gates of a city with his disciples. And he sent them to sort out supper. He went about the marketplace looking to do good. He came across a group of people stood in the, in the corner of a marketplace gazing on something there on the floor. He walked up near to them and 
He saw an, a, the most hideous sight you could imagine. There on the ground in the corner of the marketplace was a dead dog with a halter on it and it had apparently been drugged, been dragged for quite some time through the mire. And as the Savior walked near to them, the conversation sounded something like this. One said, Woo! It's polluting the air! It stinks! Another one said, How long do we have to look at this foul beast? Another man said, Look at his torn hide! You cannot even make a shoe out of it. Another one said, No doubt he's been hung for stealing. That's why he's dead. That's why that rope is around his neck. But another man stood up, who was our Lord, legend says, and said this, Pearls cannot compare to the whiteness of his teeth. Everybody hung their head in shame and turned and walked away. You see, everybody was stating the obvious. The dog was dead. Thank you, Sherlock. He stinks. Thank you very much. How long are we going to have to look at it? And then they began to assume, because of what was obvious, that the dog was dead and the dog stank and there was a rope around his neck, they then began to assume more. Isn't that the way we are? We see the obvious in somebody, point out the obvious, and then we let our imagination go beyond the obvious, and we begin to assume why they're like they are. Well, I'll tell you why he's dead. He was caught stealing. That's probably what happened. But it doesn't take a spiritual person to point out the obvious. It does take the keen eye to see the good that nobody else can see. And I just imagine tonight that perhaps if I got a little bit closer to that divine observer that we call Jesus, if I got a little bit closer to him, my ugly habit of seeing the worst and missing the best might be reversed. If I got a little bit closer to the Savior, I might leave off seeing the bad in the obvious and begin to see that which is not so obvious and that which is actually good and lovely. I would begin to be blind to the faults of my friends and wonderfully quick to see their virtues. Wouldn't that be good? Most of humanity sees the bad. Can I challenge you tonight? Would you look this way? Don't be like the most of humanity. What did Jesus see? This is really what I want to draw your attention to tonight. What did Jesus see in this scene as he was there in the Pharisee's house when there were some religious people around and in came the sinner? What did, what did Jesus see? Now, can I just say, Jesus saw what everybody else saw. That was obvious. He saw a woman and he knew she was a sinner. He saw exactly what everybody else saw and he saw more. You see, that's the key. It's not that you're blind and you can't see the bad. That would be silly. That would be ignorance. That would be foolish. We should see, but we should also see more than the obvious. We should look beyond that which is obvious and that which is clearly seen to everybody else. And so in verse number 40, Jesus answers and he says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Here's what he says. I got something to say to you. Okay, Simon says, say on. 
And he gives a little parable. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, when neither one of them could pay, he frankly or freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Now you are beginning to see, Jesus said. He didn't realize it. Jesus was trying to help him see as he saw. He goes on. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? Of course he saw the woman. That's why he was in such a turmoil. But Jesus was not interested in him seeing the woman as everybody else saw her, but seeing something different that they hadn't yet seen. Seest thou this woman? He says. I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Can I tell you what Jesus saw? An act of love. Love. Now where did he get that from? How did he see that this woman was doing what she did because she loved him? How did, how did he see that? Where, how do we conclude that? Well, we know that because in verse 41 and 42, Jesus tries to help Simon to see it. That whoever is forgiven the most will love the most. And so here's a woman who everybody already knew she was a sinner. That was clearly known, clearly seen. But what was not clearly known and clearly seen was that she had been forgiven. One of the worst things you can ever do is assume that somebody is the same today as they were yesterday. One of the worst things you can ever assume is that that person can never change. You ever been guilty of saying that before? They'll never change. Well, who made you God? I'm glad, well, they probably did say that about me, but uh, I'm glad somebody didn't hold on to that and say that I could never change. You see, all that the woman had done was done in love. No matter how unorthodox it was, no matter how strange it was, no matter how abnormal it appeared to the orthodox religious group that day, Everything she had done had been done in a deep love and compassion for the Savior. She wasn't trying to make a name for herself. She wasn't trying to be recognized or seen. She didn't care who was in the room. She just wanted to get to Jesus. Now, we could do with more people like that. Now, you might say, was she trying to earn forgiveness? No, no, no. She already had it. She already had it. And that, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. When they had nothing to pay, Jesus gives a beautiful illustration of all of humanity. Would you look this way? Everyone here tonight has a debt that you cannot pay. You owe a debt. And your sin is stacking up before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Bible says, when we could not pay, that the Lord Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
You see, you and I, oh, we're in, we're in debt. You are in debt right now. And the more you sin, the more that debt grows before Almighty God. And you're going to have to pay for that debt. You think you're getting away with it. But your sin is mounting up day after day. But can I tell you, there is one who has paid it with his own shed blood. When neither of them, when they had nothing to pay, he frankly, he freely forgave them both. You tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Now, she loved him much because she was forgiven much. And she gave her all. She gave her tears and her hair and her alabaster box, her ointment, because she loved him. And she couldn't quite believe that he would forgive her. You ever been there before? You ever been so humbled? Have you ever been, you ever been so clearly shown your wickedness? Now, can I just tell you, this woman saw what everybody else saw. Do you know that? This woman saw exactly what the Pharisees saw. In fact, every time she looked in a mirror, she saw it. Every time she saw her reflection in, in the river, she saw you're a sinner. Every time she got a glimpse of herself in a mirror, it seemed to shout at her. It seemed to scream at her. You'll never be any different. You rotten sinner. You're a disgrace. Every single day, I'm sure she avoided, tried to avoid the public. She probably tried to avoid mirrors in the river because it was a reminder, a constant reminder of who she really was and what she had done. She knew it. And she also saw it. But she saw something else. She not only saw her sin, but she saw a Savior. And perhaps she just wondered, could she really be forgiven? I often wonder, I wonder if there was more that everybody else that nobody else could see. I wonder if there was even more sin that nobody else could see. And so she even thought to herself, uh, if they think this about me with just a little bit that they know, if they knew the whole story, how much more? Because she knows, doesn't she? And I believe that's why she was there that day. She believed that this was the man who could forgive her. This was the one who could wash her away and and she believed in some measure, but she wasn't quite sure of it. She said, where do you get that from? Because Jesus goes through the effort to tell her three times that she's forgiven. Now, would you look here for a moment? Some of you tonight, I believe, are in the same position as this woman. You may not be as notorious as a sinner as she was, but you yourself know yourself to be a sinner. And you know that Jesus is the only one that can forgive you. But tonight you're just, it's almost too good to believe. And you're not quite sure. And so you come week after week like the woman came to Jesus, hoping for some measure of assurance, some evidence that you really have been forgiven. That's the way the woman came with tears. That's the way the woman came offering her all. It's an amazing thought. Three times Jesus assures her that she is forgiven. Verse number 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, speaking to Simon, 
her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Can you imagine being that woman wondering, is it true? Could it be true? Could it really be real? Could I really be forgiven? And here the words of the master say to somebody else, she's forgiven. And again, in verse number 48, he said to her, thy sins are forgiven. Oh, I don't believe that was a first-time announcement. I believe she'd heard that before. I believe she'd been told that this is the one who can forgive your sins. I believe it, and she'd heard it already before. But this is a confirmation from the mouth of Jesus, as if to say, it's okay. You're forgiven. It's okay. You are forgiven. I really do forgive you. And as if that wasn't enough, they mumbled saying, who is this that can forgive sins also? He says to the woman again, thy faith has saved thee. Not her tears. Although that was beautiful. It wasn't the washing of Jesus' feet that forgave her. No, 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 no. No, it wasn't the kisses upon his feet. But her faith. It wasn't the ointment that she broke and poured out. All that she had, she poured at the feet of Jesus. No, no, no. It was her faith. Because faith precedes her tears. And faith precedes the kisses and the oil. Faith precedes all. In fact, it's the one thing that motivates you. It's faith that motivates you to come week after week. It's faith that motivates you to pray day after day. It's faith. That motivates you. You say, but I just, I don't know if I have enough faith. And people outside sometimes can look and see. But you do. You're coming. And you're praying. And you're seeking. There's 160,000 people in the city of Oxford who are not seeking and who are not praying and who are not coming, but you are. You're like this woman who's just not sure. And Jesus, in mercy and compassion, three times says, Her sins are forgiven. And to her, thy sins are forgiven. And again, thy faith hath saved thee. So go in peace. Don't worry any longer. Stop fretting over this. You're forgiven. And I want you tonight to know that. And more than I want you to know that Christ wants you to know. Now, this is not for the proud, arrogant one. In fact, you see, there's something else that we see in this text. Our wrong view of others clouds a right view of ourselves. Now, would you look here for just a moment? When you are looking down at other people, picking out all of the glaringly obvious Negative points. The attention is turned off of you. That's what we like, isn't it? Because let's let's be honest, it's much more enjoyable to be able to get the limelight off of us, at least when it comes to our problems. It's a little bit better to look at somebody else's problems and bark a little bit more loudly at their problems so that nobody looks at ours. And that's exactly what happens. But Jesus does something. He turns the tables. Because here were people looking down their long spiritual religious noses at a woman 
that had a reputation of being a sinner and they were judging her and they weren't even considering themselves. And so in verse 44, seest thou this woman? Of course they did. I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. It always amazes me that people can ascribe to someone ill motives whilst doing nothing themselves for God. Isn't that interesting? We can, can, we can judge and condemn somebody else for the good that they're doing because it's making us look bad or making us uncomfortable. And so in order to remedy that feeling, we will condemn them. We've had people throughout the last year who have criticized us for worshiping together. And uh, perhaps they felt uh, that we were making them look bad. One church in Welshpool reported our dear friends there, New Street Baptist Chapel, for worshiping and meeting totally legally, totally legally, reported them to the council. These people, we suspect that they are not following and abiding by COVID guidance and regulation. Another church. Now why? Perhaps it was because in their obedience to God, it revealed the other's disobedience. So we've got to make an excuse for this. We are going to have to do something about it. Thou gavest me no water. She's washed my feet with her tears. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, which was customary in those days. So, so was foot washing when a visitor entered your home. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment, the lowliest part of my body. So here's what Jesus said. To whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. So you say, well, is it Simon's fault that he wasn't as bad of a sinner as this woman and therefore he didn't have so much to be forgiven? That's why the woman did so much. She was such a rotten sinner and had need of such forgiveness that that's why she loved so much. Was it Simon's fault that he didn't live such a sinful life? No, 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 no. That's not the problem. Let me tell you the problem. The problem was that he couldn't see his own sin. He couldn't see that he was just as sinful as she was. And had he seen that, he would have done the same. But he was too busy looking at everybody else's sin. And because he didn't see his own sin, he saw no need of a Savior. And therefore he loved not. And so the question is, seest thou this woman? And then follows, really, you could say, seest thou thyself? Would you look here for a moment? Can I ask you tonight, have you seen yourself for who you are? Have you seen yourself as God sees you initially? Undone, lost, broken without hope? Or are you constantly, look, constantly looking at others so that you can escape the reality of your own condition? Your gaze should never stop at looking at somebody else and looking at yourself. Really, the ultimate question is, seest thou the Savior? Do you see the Savior? Do you see the one who died for all of that sin? Do you see the one who laid down his life for you? 
Do you see the depth of your own despair and darkness and sin? And do you see the Savior, the one who died for it? There's a naturalist called John Burroughs that once said, the secret about observation lies in the habit of decisive gazing. Meaning being deliberate about what you look at. If you want to see things properly, then you've got to be deliberate in what you look at. Listen to this quote. Not by a first casual glance, but by a steady, deliberate aim of the eye are the rarest things discovered. You must look intently and hold your eye firmly to the spot if you are to see more than the rank and file of mankind. Can I just say most today see like everybody else sees? You want to see differently? Then let your gaze begin with looking at Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Are you looking at the glaringly obvious things, the physical things and problems that everybody else sees? Or can you see what nobody else typically sees? In Hebrews chapter 11 and closing in verse number 13, we looked at this uh, throughout the lockdown, this, this wonderful chapter of faith. But the Bible says in in this passage, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Can I just say to you uh, this evening that there are men and women of the faith who died centuries ago who saw what you and I can't see now. And they died in faith looking forward to it. It's already happened. And some other things are going to happen. But the question is, can you see it? Are your eyes open? Or are you blinded by the glaringly obvious? People going on about this problem and that problem. And this obvious thing and that obvious thing. But can you see the things that are not obvious? If you're here tonight and you're lost, I want to encourage you. If you have felt and sensed your need of a Savior then I want to encourage you, as the Savior gently said three times, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven because thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Go in peace. Believer, I want to challenge you. May God keep you and I from ever being like that religious crowd, that hypocritical crowd that looks with criticism at all the glaringly obvious faults and failures of everybody that comes in. Look for the good. Mr. Borum said one time, if I had 100 friends who had 99 faults and one good point, if I were to focus on the one good point in each one of those friends and determine to emulate the one good point in each one of those friends, I would very quickly become a much better person. We're normally distracted by the 99 faults, aren't we? May the Lord help us take our eyes first and foremost to look unto the Savior. May He direct us to see as He sees, to view things as He does.
Let's bow our heads in prayer, then we'll sing our final hymn tonight. Father, we long this evening to see as thy son, the Lord Jesus, sees. We ask thee, Father, to draw us near to thyself. We might begin to learn how the Savior lived and how he spoke and how he responded, how he saw. I pray tonight for the one who knows the heaviness and weight of their sin, but doesn't quite yet know the assurance of forgiveness. May they hear the voice of the, of the Savior tonight say, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. I pray for the other one who thinks he's okay, who thinks she's okay, who sees no problem, no sin in their life. Show them tonight. Show them the price that the Savior paid. And I pray that there be a great change in many people's hearts this evening. By the power of thy spirit. Amen. Would you look here for a moment? It's amazing. The one who was forgiven lacked assurance of it. The one who wasn't was very sure of it. Isn't that interesting? The one who lacked assurance was forgiven. But the one who was quite confident of how he stood with God was not forgiven. 